Welcome to the last episode of the Secrets and Sins podcast, and we will be talking about adaptations of mystery literature and discuss some of the tropes associated with them. Hello, I'm Tilly. And I'm Sarah. And we're going to um, be discussing the screen adaptations of mystery stories. We're going to start with Sherlock. I'm going to be talking about the adaptation Elementary um, with Johnny Lee Miller. And Sarah, which one are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about BBC uh, um, adaptation starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. I will let you start because BBC Sherlock aired right before Elementary premiered. Most people know of Sherlock, but the 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 general story it's it was a series of books written uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And it's about a, uh, a detective solving cases and his assistant. The BBC adaptation, it's a more modern take on it. They live in uh, modern day England. They still, Watson and Sherlock live in a flat together. And they go out and they solve cases. Um, quite a few of the stories are slightly different. They're changed to be more modern. There's obviously, I would say, more drama than there is in the books. And... Also, they're both younger than you would read them in the original um, story. I grew up with the Sherlock novels, but more actually audiobooks of them. When my family and I traveled cross-country to the East Coast, where my mom's family is from, we listened to a lot of the Sherlock audiobooks. And they always had, I would say, rather old people voicing Sherlock and Watson. In, uh, in, the, in the BBC adaptation, they're, they're Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch are both quite young, and that, I mean, that shows, but Sherlock is still, a, you know, what you would call a sociopath, <laughs> what he refers to as a sociopath. Um, people tell him he's a psychopath, and he says, no, I'm a sociopath, and he still gets very agitated if he doesn't have a case, and there's also drug use in it, but not morphine and cocaine, as it is in the novels. He uses, uh, like, nicotine patches. Think something else, but I can't exactly recall. I think Watson found him in a heroin den on accident one time. When that, when he had that, like with those withdrawal sy- symptoms, because for him, he needs stimulants because his his mind is so his mind is so complex that he either needs drugs to simulate it or a case, a, a murder case, and are only four seasons, which contain thirteen episodes, but each of the episodes are movie length. Elementary is significantly different. Well, and I would like to hear you talk about elementary then. Okay. <laughs> so, moving on to elementary, um, <clears throat> Sherlock Holmes was still a heroin addict in London, but his rich father, who we don't see much of in the original Sherlock, his father sends him to New York City in America to recover from heroin. He, instead of Dr. John Watson, who was a military surgeon, we are introduced to former civilian surgeon, Dr. Joan Watson, it's a little bit of a gender twist, to be Sherlock's sober companion. And eventually they begin to consult with the NYPD, which is different slightly, where Sherlock would help with Scotland Yard and take his own cases. He majority consults with the NYPD and listens to them. Um, although there are a few plot points where he doesn't listen to them and does get in a little bit of trouble. 
Okay, so that's quite a difference because both in the original stories and in the BBC adaptation, he doesn't care what the police want. He's a free-range detective and he does what he wants and he solves cases for them, but they don't employ him, really. Yeah, and as his character progresses, he definitely becomes a lot more caring. And I don't recall if he ever explicitly states that if he's if he has anything different about his mind, like as being a sociopath or a psychopath. But there is one point where um, one of the characters introduced later and like she's neuroatypical and they talk about how everyone else in the room, including some of the NYPD detectives and Dr. Watson are neurotypical, meaning that they don't have a mental illness, but she can't decide if Sherlock does or not. So the writers kind of leave that ambiguous. Okay, interesting. Do we Um, have anything else we want to talk about with Sherlock? I feel like in both, because I've also seen the BBC Sherlock, the character of Sherlock Holmes does have this character arc of, as you begin to know him more, through the series, he does become kinder um, and like a generally more caring person. Like in BBC Sherlock, though, he's definitely a lot more self-centered than I yes. feel like elementary watch uh, elementary the elementary Sherlock is because there he's genuinely like I want to help people, but I don't really know how to. He still has this arrogance about him, but the longer he spends with Joan, the more he kind of gets his ego knocked down. Okay. I'm laughing. Elementary, my dear boy. <laughs> the whole purpose of the show. Yeah. So funny. But okay. Fact, he never actually, er, Sherlock never actually said that in the original works of Sherlock Holmes. Really? He never yeah. actually said elementary, my dear Watson. Mm-hmm. Oh. Where did that come from then, I wonder? When I was doing some research, there is a common line that he says within the written work that's something to the effect of it is, it's in its simplicity. Um, and so some people think that it comes from that. Okay, interesting. That in, in the BBC series, I would say Sherlock does become kinder, but he doesn't become very much less self-centered or arrogant. But at Watson's wedding, he is rather sweet. And in his own way, he's trying to be sweet. Yeah. And he doesn't quite achieve it, but he he is... He, he does show that he cares, and also um, at the end, uh, spoiler alert, after Watson's wife dies, he helps Watson take care of his daughter, and he's quite sweet with her. So, and... He has his moments, for sure. Yes. Yeah. At the beginning of, of season one, you could have never seen, like, that, that wouldn't have been a possibility. So he oh. definitely does have a character arc, but... Mm-hmm. And in elementary at the very end I think it's like in the final couple of episodes um it had like seven like seven full seasons like 24 episodes a piece I think except for the last one um it was a half season he comes back for Jones um he comes back to live with Joan in the brownstone that they live in in New York and helps her take care of her son that she adopted so that's really sweet at the end there too one of the interesting things that I think is worth mentioning uh, in the BBC Sherlock is, I don't, you couldn't necessarily call it queer baiting. I don't think some people well, would, it was especially absolutely queer baiting. Okay, all right. I just, I feel like it sort of is, but then after he gets married, it's sort of 
less so, but especially in the first, I would say in the first episode, there's quite a few references to, you know, them being a gay couple, and then Watson being like, no, no, we're not, which, you know, some people, obviously, that left, that left people wanting mm-hmm. that, and I think it would have been interesting to mm-hmm. as, as a place to go, but I don't think it necessarily would have made sense within the story. Yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting. I also find it very interesting. Um, and personally, like, I identify as asexual, and so a lot of, like, people in the asexual community are like, huh, Sherlock has a lot of characteristics of people that are asexual, and so some people are like, maybe he's that instead. But then that also kind of justifies the writers not, like, playing into it at all um because even if Sherlock and Watson didn't get together which would to me be a boundary like they could have at least given Sherlock a boyfriend <laughs> <at some point. laughs> like come on <laughs> well I mean I I do I do see exactly what you're um saying with that I've I've certainly thought that and read about it in the past I think he does exhibit not only in in the BBC not only how he says sociopathic you know a mind but he also has he's he has traits of you know asexuality and so he definitely is on the spectrum there are bits in the series where it seems almost like he's trying to flirt with women a couple of them yeah but sometimes it feels like that it's more again for his own benefit more than anything because he definitely knows when to turn on and off the charm especially whenever he fake proposed to the one gal (laughs) Yeah, that definitely. (laughs) Yeah, Um, so yeah, I mean, and and it's interesting because I mean, even if at the end they didn't end up together, they still sort of ended up together because they're best friends. Because Watson is helping Watson take care of his child. So I think it's, I mean, I think it's the happiest ending we could have gotten as a compromise, like at that time. Yeah, there could definitely be some, like, it could definitely be interpreted as a queer queer platonic relationship, a QPR. But yeah, that's another story for another day. (laughs) Christie's works now. The specific uh, Christie novel we're going to discuss is Murder on the Orient Express, which was recently turned into a movie. We both read Murder on the Orient Express as part of uh, this mystery and gothic class. Tilly, do you want to provide a summary of the book and its contents? Is a story that takes place mostly on a train um, that Hercule Perot is traveling on. A slew of other characters. Um, yeah, so meet all of these characters. While they're on this long train ride, um, someone gets murdered. And so Hercule, being the private investigator on the train, he decides to investigate it. <laughs> what happens is he interviews everyone that's on the train, figures out like everyone's story, what everyone's alibi was, finds a couple of red herrings in the mix, and then eventually he relates, he finds out that the murdered, that the victim is the guy who murdered a child in America because this takes place in Europe, and then eventually, slight spoiler alert, <laughs> All of the people traveling on the train, they're all faking their accents, faking their names, because they're all family members that were related to the child that was murdered. And so this was them getting revenge on the victim. And they all did it. They all murdered him. (laughs) 
So more specifically, um, most of them are family members, but some of them are also nurses, like cooks, maids. maids. They were all involved somehow with this family, and it all, it, it this murder of this child I, several years previously hurt all of them. Mm -hmm. And so they all planned to go on this train and murder this man. The movie, it's based certainly on the book. It, it is the general plot and the general story. There are quite a few differences. There are some different characters. Also, when Perot, he, um, he interviews all of the suspects on the train. That's probably, I would say, most of the second half of the novel. In the movie, I, I don't believe, in the novel, they told some truths and, and some fragments of truths in the novel. In the movie, most of them outright lie to him, which is yeah. quite interesting. So um, misdirection in the novel, a lot of yes. red herrings. I would say there's there's more in the movie. There's there's a lot more misdirection. Who stole a priceless relic or whatever? Yeah, and he catches. Um, there are three suspects, and they're each holy men, men of of different churches. And it ends up being it ends up being a man in power in the police force who stole this relic. There's a scene at the beginning that sets up Perot's character in a way that he does not. It gives us some background in a way that doesn't necessarily in the book. It also sets him up as kind of OCD. I don't recall if he was as much in the book. I don't he, think. From what I remember, I think he might have had some tendencies, but I don't think they were obvious. Because yes. you expect like a detective to be very organized and detailed in his work. Mm -hmm. In the movie, he is, it is very quite obvious. Um, there's a scene where he's in, he's in Israel and he's asking for his breakfast and the eggs, he gets two eggs, they have to be perfectly the same size or else he sends them back and gets different ones. Or he's walking through the streets and he steps in, in cow poo and he stops and the guy leading him is like, oh, I'm so sorry. He goes, oh, it's not that. It's the imbalance, and then he steps his other foot in it. So his, so it's the, it's it's strange, but um, it that does make sense for his character. Hmm? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that almost plays off of like Sherlock and his like how tedious, like tedious everything has to be, and all the details too. Kind of, yeah. It, there were certainly similarities to Sherlock. One of the very interesting things he also says at the very beginning of the movie. He says there is right and there's wrong. There's no in between. So certainly Poirot throughout the course of this movie, certainly he has character development because he realizes he he discovers that there is an in between. Because mm -hmm. at the very that's end, the whole premise of the book. Because hmm? that's the whole premise of the book is at the end, like, do we convict these people because they yes. all killed this man? I would say it's more obvious in the movie though. Um, and at the very end, he kind of. So that's another version of that line to Mrs. Hubbard. He says, there was right, there was wrong, and now there is you. Because she's somewhere in the middle. Because she was wronged. Because she was the uh, grandmother of the child who was killed. But she also killed the man, Ratchet, who was the Castelli, the man who killed the child. But she did it out of not only revenge, but wanting to bring justice. So she was both wronged and she wronged someone else. So she's in, she's not quite either. 
They would, I would also say in the movie, there's also quite a bit more gun violence. There's people shooting each other, people, there's some chase scenes. I mean, there's, there's one part where, I don't believe this was in the book at all, where um, Poirot and his, his detective friend, I think you say it, Bach? Anyway, he, they are looking for uh, Ratchet's financial records to find more clues. And McQueen runs with the records all the way down because they're on a, um, they, also a difference in the book is the train is in a slightly different place. He runs down from the train and underneath it and tries to set it on fire. And there's a whole chase where like Perot is running after him and it's crazy. Um, and it's a, like a full like two minute thing that was not in the book at all. I don't believe, I don't think anyone in the book left the train except for when a couple of them went on walks. Outside. Yeah, they were at a couple of stops, but even then it was just like more glancing out the window because it wasn't their stop to get off. Yeah. Um, and also in the movie, the train stopping is very much more dramatic in the book. Another interesting thing is in the movie, Mrs. Hubbard wears um, this, this bobbed blonde wig. And at the very end, she takes it off and reveals her like long brown hair and she looks much older but she kind of, she pretended to be younger to conceal her identity. Also, there's a, there's a difference in the book after Ratchet is murdered. Uh, I think there's a thump. Is it when after Ratchet is murdered, but no one knows that yet. It's just in the middle of the night and the conductor knocks on the door and someone answers, it's nothing in French. In the book, it's revealed that it was McQueen because um, Ratchet doesn't speak French. In the movie, it was Mrs. Hubbard who whispered because she was still in the room burning some evidence and, like, getting rid of things uh, of Orient Express. There were quite a few lines that were the same. There was when Perot, uh, or when, when they described the killing, it's, they say it, it looks like the killer closed his eyes and struck blind. And I believe that's exactly from the book. There was also, one of the really cool things about the movie was the use of camera angles. There were quite a few scenes that were shot from above, like you were above and looking down into a compartment or down into, and that was cool because, I mean, that, that's kind of, you could just hear what they were saying and, and, but not really see their faces. So that was cool. Thing that definitely puts the audience in a different perspective, more it as the, like, they're playing God than from the like, severely filtered views of because it's I think the book's in third person but a lot of it is from Perot's like point of view and mm -hmm. then he's also taking like in the interviews he's talking to everyone so he's getting their version of the story through his eyes and his interpretation of their story so like it's a, like filtered and a lot more biased than I feel like doing it from a camera angle similar to that would it produces a different effect it does. And one of the other interesting things is during the interviews, as you would expect from a movie, there were black and white flashback sequences to what actually happened mm -hmm. compared to what they're telling Poirot, which I don't believe was in the book. They didn't really, they didn't tell what really happened. They just told the oh, book so it was said. Like an overlay? It was, yes. So like that, what they were saying didn't line up with the sequence? Exactly. So like um, the, the nurse who 
accidentally burst into Ratchet's compartment before she went to get the aspirin from Mrs. Hubbard. In both the book and the movie, he she just tells Perot it was an awkward encounter. I said I was sorry and I closed the door very quickly. In the flashback, it shows that he just pulled a gun on her and he said something threatening and she slammed the door before he could shoot her, um, which is, it's, it's a very strong contrast to what she told per Perot and it, it tells you that it gives you a very clear hint that not everything is quite as it seems because every interviewee is lying slightly. Uh, two, two more things. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was interesting is in the book, Mary first sees, Mar Mary Debenham first sees Perot through the window of the train. He's on the station. She's in her compartment. In the, in the book, <laughs> in the movie, they actually meet on a dock before they take a boat to get to the guide for the last 30 minutes of the movie, <laughs> which was done very well. And then there's one other bit. I'm going to check with you real quick. There was not, um, they didn't talk about who was accused of the murder in Castelli's place at all in the book, did they? In Castelli's place. What do you because mean? there was a whole bit where McQueen's father was the lawyer who was with Castelli's case, and he was a prosecutor, and they found another suspect. I don't think that was in the book at all. I don't remember it. If it okay. was in the book, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was huge in the movie. Like, half of the characters actually had more of a connection, to. So, in the movie, um, a part that we don't remember being in the book at all was uh, there was a poor maid that was accused in Castelli's place of murdering Daisy Armstrong. And what's interesting is some of the characters on the train had less of a connection to the Armstrong family and more of a connection to this maid. One of them was her love interest. One of them was her brother. And so they were, uh, because she was taken away and killed in Castelli's place because she was poor and because she had no alibi, um, even though she was not involved at all. Um, I think she was a Spanish woman. So it was, um, there were also quite a few mentions of race aside from that, in the movie, because, um, in the book, too, a lot, in the book, yeah, um, in the movie, I mean, obviously, since it was a visual medium, it, it was more clear, Colonel Arbuno, Arbuthno, how do you say his name, <laughs> Colonel Arbuthno, he, in the movie, he is a doctor, who was previously in the military, but he is a doctor, and he's played by Leslie M. Jr., so he is a man of color, and that comes up several times in, in the movie. People make mentions of it. One man is like, I don't want to sit with him in the dining car. And it's quite a, you know, it's it, before, before Ratchet's murder. It, there's quite a few things that set up. Next, we're going to talk about Knives Out, a 2019 film. So Knives Out is about this rich man who he has been getting sick over the years. And so he has a nurse who helps him. And she's very poor. Her family, they're immigrants, but a couple of them are undocumented. She's very poor, and so is her family, so she's working to help support her family. And this rich guy who she takes care of, they're very good friends through their, through their professional relationship. Um, and all of his family is kind of just living off of him and kind of, in a way, waiting for him to die so they can get their inheritance. But when he does die of committing suicide, he, come to find out, has cut all of them out of the will, and 
the poor immigrant nurse has inherited millions and millions of dollars, the way that they insult her immediately after finding out, after they've been wealthy for most of their lives, it just shows the stark contrast between like, like socioeconomic classes. Um, that was interesting to me. Also, it definitely speaks to, certainly, uh, I would say all of the characters that are his family, I would say they're not necessarily good people. They all have some part of them that is wrong. Some of them are stealing money from him. One of them is having an affair. There's a lot of um, turmoil within this family that he only recently became aware of and revealed to them that he knew before his death. And he told them that he was cutting them out of the inheritance. A lot more twisted than originally thought. I was, the whole movie, I was rooting for him to be a good guy. I was rooting for him to help the, the poor nurse and, and, and help her. But he, he, it turns out he kind of tried to orchestrate the whole thing with Knives Out. Spoiler alert, if you have not seen it, what ends up happening is um, it was a suicide because both the nurse and... Um, Ransom. What's his name? The old guy. What's his name? Hold on. Oh, the older man? Yeah. Um, well, the grandson had switched the medication, but then the nurse had accidentally switched them back. Yes. Uh, but so the, the medicine was right because they thought that he had overdosed, and so yeah. the old man went ahead and cut his throat. Um, but the medicine wasn't wrong to begin with. Yeah. yeah, they they believed that she had given him a hundred milligrams of morphine instead of his other medication, and that he would be dead in ten minutes. The the funny thing about it, because he was a famous mystery writer, immediately after she told him that, he was like, "Oh, so this is a way that a character could be murdered," and he starts to write it down in notes. And she's like, "No, no, this is serious. This is a problem." Um, but it turns out she did not actually overdose him and he would have been perfectly fine if he had not killed himself which is quite a sad you know it's a quite it's a quite tragic thing for a murder mystery because murder mysteries obviously they're about murder they they have to be a little sad but more but typically they're more i would say thriller and fun but knives out was more sad than i expected it to be it was quite tragic and it was very complex Okay. okay, that's, yeah, that's certainly true. Even, even the younger, the younger people, her friend, what was her friend's name? But anyway, she was um, close with this girl, and there was a, a part where the family forced her to call the nurse after she had run away uh, with, with Ransom. She, he had been like, hey, get in my car, let's get out of here, after they had all started to attack her for being the sole um, person who inherited all of, um, his wealth. And so her, her friend called her, uh, and she said, they don't know I'm calling you. I just want to know what you're going to do. Are you going to give us back the inheritance or not? But then it's revealed after their conversations ended, the entire family is standing behind her and they forced her to make the call, which so, which kind of shows that even the, uh, people who had good hearts in the family were kind of corrupted 
by their parents. The uh, director, I believe the director and the writer were the same man on Knives Out, and he was inspired by the entire works of Christie because he read Christie and he loved Christie, um, and he had been coming up with this premise for a very long time. Um, he's just, he was inspired by all of her works together, so it kind of is a meta-narrative, Knives Out is. It has a lot of like references to mystery tropes and references to things that happen a lot, such as um, the the most innocent seeming person is actually the one who did it. Mm -hmm. um, the murder taking place under the cover of darkness because he did die at night and they didn't find him until the next morning. Um, kind of, yeah, it could kind of be perceived as that, but whatever they like did the big reveal. It was shown that like while the family was doing something, Ransom was swapping out the meds too. So, but yeah, yeah. Night, definitely. Because of what Marta was doing, she was definitely at night. <laughs> That's also definitely a Christie thing, um, having a big reveal of what happened at the end. Um, in Knives Out, they don't really show them telling the family what happened. They just show Ransom being taken out of the house in handcuffs and the family all looking upset. <laughs> And Marta kind of just, she stands on a balcony with a cup that says, my house, my rules. Because that she inherited her part. <laughs> it was, it was, that was good. Um, but also in Mar an Orient Express, there's, both in the book and the movie, there's a reveal. Mm -hmm. Perot goes to all of the characters and he says, he gathers them, they're all in the same place. And he says, this is what happened. And you are this, and you were actually this, and you were involved this way. And I think that's that's a very Christy thing to do. I haven't read many of her novels. I've kind of, I've read Orient Express and then another a long time ago that I don't remember what it was called, but it's very that that was how she did it. She wrote and she let her audience figure out for themselves, and then at the end she did a big reveal, which I which I think is um, actually. That is a, I would say that's a trope that also leads into other, other, other things that aren't Christy, like, um, like Sherlock definitely not, maybe yeah. not established it, but definitely like it was one of the earlier ones that also did that too. Yeah, because Sherlock, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock before Christy started writing, right? Yeah, he was, because, like, um, late 1800s. She was. He early was, 19, yeah. yeah, he was late 1800s, early 1900s, and she was like 1930s. Yeah, and onward, yes. A little yes. bit of 1920s, but yeah, the when the eras of the mystery novel are divided, like, Sherlock comes first, I feel like. I also, I wanted to talk about, so another thing that includes a lot of these tropes is the board game Clue. And all of the media that sprung off of it. I did not know this until I looked it up, but apparently there have been spinoff games, there have been books, there was a film, there's a television series, and there's a musical of Clue. <laughs> Which I was is actually going to see the stage version, version of it. It was a high school stage version of it. Um, was it a musical? Or was it a play? I don't think it was a musical. I think it was just a normal play. Um, so I'm going to give some history on this board game. Um, I, I, most people are aware of it, but I'm, I'm going to provide some anyway. So it was 
uh, made by a man called Anthony E. Pratt uh, from Birmingham, England. It was first released in the UK in 1949, and it was actually created by him and his wife during the air raids of Britain. They were hiding in, in their bunker, and they decided to come up with a mystery game. During World War II? During World War II, yes. And uh, the object of the game is to solve a murder that took place in a mansion, figuring out which of six suspects that were in the house for this party at the time of the murder did it, and what room they did it in, and which of the six weapons they used to kill. Several different versions of the board game have been released since the original. There have been updated versions. I have played this game for a long time. It's one of my family's favorites. We own two versions of it. One that was made around the 1970s, and it has the original lineup of characters, complex board, uh, and we also got a, a new version a few years ago with slightly different characters. Yes, I believe uh, one of the professors or one of the doctors is a woman instead of a man in the new updated version. And the board is actually slightly easier to play with. Well, in the old board, there are starting places that each character starts on, on the edges of the board. And in the old version, you, you roll two dice. And in the old version, it did not necessarily take one turn to get to a room where you can make a guess and gather clues. It may have taken two because the rooms were unevenly spaced. And in the new version, they've changed that so that it's a lot easier to play with and it's a lot fairer. But it's quite, it's quite similar. And it's interesting that it's remained popular for over 70 years. Yeah. So the Clue movie... Uh, it follows the general story of the board game, uh, but it has several different twists and turns, and there are several more murders that take place while they're investigating the murder. There are also, this I love this, there are three different endings or solutions to the crime. When it was released in theaters, each theater received one of the three endings. And so you would have to travel to a different theater and see the movie again if you wanted to see a different ending. In the home release, you can watch all three endings one after another. Um, it, it says, it's like the first one, it's like, maybe this happened. And then it shows the second, it says, but maybe this happened. And then the last one, it's like, but maybe this is what really happened. And it's quite interesting because in the third, in, in the first two, it was one of the suspects who murdered both Mr. Body, the, the murderer, which is a pun in of itself. And also the cook and the maid and a, a woman who came to the door and a policeman. One person killed all of those characters in both the first and the second ending. In the third ending, everyone except one character did it, which also plays into the, the everyone did it trope. Um, I don't remember if we mentioned that. But that's that's quite interesting. And in two out of the three endings, um, one of the characters is revealed to be an FBI agent investigating this whole thing. So that's that's kind of fun. Uh, it also kind of shows what the since this was made in uh, it was released in 1985. It kind of it certainly has like an underlying like Cold War that there's some of the characters are government officials or, or their husband was a government official or they have secrets of the nuclear bombs or whatever and so it's very obvious that 
um, it was made at a time where that was a concern, uh, which also adds another layer to certainly the story of Clue. The original, uh, the, the film did originally pretty poorly at the box office. It did not make up its budget. It was short about a million, which is pretty close, but it still didn't do very well. And it has very- A million dollars. What? A million dollars is a million dollars. Yeah, the budget was 15 million and the film made 14, I think 0.6 million. So it was almost there, but not quite. And it, it had mixed reviews. Some people loved it, and some people were like, this is weird. Why is this a movie? Um, but since then, it's developed quite a large cult following, like some of a lot of my other favorite movies have. They didn't do well at the box office, but then once people got it on home video, they were like, this is a really good movie. I think, and, and the tagline of the movie was, it's not just a game anymore, which is very 80s. That, that's very, you know, it, it feels very um, 80s. I had um, a question that I wanted to pose to our discussion about this. I wanted to know your thoughts on what about the story and the format of Clue do you think caused it to be um, adapted into so many mediums, caused other people to be inspired to change and to write it? So <laughs> I took a criminal justice course a few years ago in high school. It was a dual credit class. And cool. the first lesson was that Americans are obsessed with crime and especially and like it listed like the top 20 or 50 I can't remember which number um like television shows in the U.S. and like 80% of them are crime dramas <laughs> and so like I think Clue just as a premise of like who done it like that trope as well like just trying to figure like work out who did it um where they did it and what they did it with like that's just like that itself has kind of become a trope as well. And so I think like just our fascination with mystery made the game a success. And then because just that nature of mystery is just so popular, I think that's why they probably turned it into a movie. And then from there, like the other successes that it has had. Mm-hmm. Um, with the games and the, the, the... Actually, I just remembered there was a spinoff game I played when I was a kid which was like mini Clue and the characters were all children and they were trying to find a lost dog. Like that was the game. Oh, the um, kid I, Yeah, that makes sense. What? A kid version, finding a lost dog instead of who murdered grandpa. Yes, exactly. I remember the first time I played the actual Clue, I was like, oh my gosh, it's a murder instead of a lost dog. Like I was so shocked, but it, it was, it's a very good game. The also, I would say also the fun thing is it lets the player or in the case of the movie, the musical, it lets the audience play the role of the detective. Mm -hmm. And so you feel like you're actually involved in this, you're actually there and you get to see it all play out in front of you. It's also, um, I would say quite a simple murder mystery, Like it's, it's quite, it's, it's, I would say tropey it well. And because it was written in it was it was made in in the 1940s it since then has become the the simple murder mystery Mm -hmm. like here are your options pick one you actually have a chance of being right whereas like in the real world it would be like there are a lot of people that could be involved yeah it wouldn't just be six suspects certainly but also the whodunit thing that you mentioned 
and and the 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 murderer is with us now one of us is the murderer that is something that certainly i think captures people's attention um because that's in knives out that's in orient express mm -hmm. and it's in clue sometimes i would say certainly in certain um uh stories of sherlock it's in that as well like there's a there's a murdered member of a family and he talks to the family and one of them turns out to be the murderer that's i would say that's a trope but it's also something that um i would say people just in general are very excited by i love whodunits i always and we loved having you here for our podcast thank you so much for listening <laughs>